good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host uh, for this program, coming to you from the studios at the Coming Home Network International, Nassport, Ohio. But I'm joined today uh, by <coughs> Ken Hensley, who's a co-worker with me, a fellow a member of the Coming Home Network. Hello, Ken. Hello. Ken, good to be with you, Marcus. Ken's joining us from halfway around the world. I'm in the center of the world. He's on the left coast. Uh, Ken, it's <laughs> I always forget your title, official, because you're always you're working on the internet for the Coming Home Network. You work with no, no. I mean, you 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 help. I forget um, my title too. I can't, I can't remember it. Right. Um, I think I'm called like a, a a coordinator of pastoral care and resources and a bunch of stuff. Yeah, and all good stuff for the Coming Home Network and those of you that are regular Coming Home Network uh, members or uh, connected with, especially the online community, you know, the work that Ken does. And you've been reading the newsletter. He's been, been writing a lot of articles lately, especially in relationship to the Reformation and Luther and, and uh, predestination and other things you've been writing. Or maybe I've, I've jumped ahead. Maybe you haven't written on the predestination one yet. Because <laughs> that wasn't your issue before you became Catholic, I don't think, Ken. No. I've asked Ken to join us today for this episode of uh, Deep in Scripture because like myself, he was a former pastor before he became Catholic. And what I want us to consider today in this discussion is something that was an issue that really opened my heart to the Catholic Church. Um, and to this day, it's one of the key issues that keeps turning my heart towards home, if you will. And it's be because that I knew way back, boy, almost 45 plus years ago when I discerned that the Lord was not only calling me to be uh, a son and a disciple, but to be a pastor. And it was all about proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ so that anyone to whom grace had touched their heart would know how to be saved, how to live their life in Christ, and then how to spend eternity with him. And that's been maybe the key issue that's uh, motivated me all these years, mm -hmm. because by grace in the mercy of God, I experienced that myself, and then I wanted others to. And, and I have a feeling, Ken, that that's also was a big part of your continuing walk with Christ. Yes. Yes, you said it well. And when I was a pastor uh, after seminary, and then I served in youth ministry for a number of years, and then in the pastoral ministry for about 10 years, I took very seriously the responsibility that I had when I entered every Sunday morning into the pulpit. Uh, I didn't feel that the authority that I carried with me into the, into the pulpit had anything particular to do with my ordination other than that was the denomination giving me the credentials to get in that pulpit. To me, the authority that I carried into the pulpit was the Word of God. That was in that my responsibility as a pastor was to explain that clearly to my congregation for the sake of their salvation. That was really it. 
Certainly we talked about other things, about marriage or about moral life and all these other issues, but almost always in connections with eternity. What does the scripture say about how we're to live out our life and how that helps us know what we must believe and must do or not do so that we can spend eternity with God? And Ken, I'm presuming that in general, at least, that's what most pastors understand their call is when they enter into the pulpit. Yeah, again, I think you're stating it well. I think that that is, in general, um, what people have in mind. And what I had in mind, you know, I had had an experience of conversion to Christ. And so what I was spending my time doing was trying to understand what that meant for me and how it came about and how it could come about for other people and how to explain that. But, but, but yeah, I'm with you 100% so far. When I went into the pulpit, it was the Word of God. It was the Bible opened before me and explained to the congregation that was my authority, not, not anything like the, you know, the, the ceremony I had or whatever. Right, and uh, yeah. maybe a couple of images from the Old Testament that were mm-hmm. important to me were not, not only the images of being good shepherds to the flock to whom mm-hmm. God had called us, but maybe that image of the watchman. We had a responsibility, and if we shirked that responsibility by misleading the people, then that's our—we're culpable for that. Yeah. We, had, we were given an opportunity to get to a pulpit mm-hmm. to open the Word of God and to help the people in the congregation know what was true, mm-hmm. and we were culpable if we, if, if we misrepresented the Scripture— um, if we didn't warn the people, if they were mm-hmm. living immoral lives, if they're living lives that prevent them from eternity, it was our responsibility as pastors mm-hmm. to be the watchman. Mm-hmm. And our Lord mm-hmm. Jesus had a similar thing about it's better to have a mill wheel put around your neck and thrown in the lake than to mislead one of these little ones. Mm-hmm. And what does Paul say in Acts chapter 20 when he's meeting with the elders from the from the church in Ephesus to say goodbye? And he says, I am, what, what's the word? I am clear, cleared from the blood of all men, or I am, because I have not ceased to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. You know, he, he had that sense, too, of the watchman from the book of Ezekiel. Same sense. So with that as a backdrop to our discussion— the reason I want us to look at this today is because one of the things for me that opened my heart to the Catholic Church was when I was standing in that pulpit and I was looking at, for example, one of the verses that's on our list today. We're going to look at about 1,462 verses today. Is that right, Ken? we got a bunch of verses, not that many, but we've got a bunch of yeah. verses here. And the point of it is not for us to do an exegetical study of any one of these, but in a big sense to look at these Mm -hmm. scriptures and Mm -hmm. ask this question, Mm -hmm. are we hearing the full truth of these? Because when I stood in that pulpit as a Presbyterian, and a a number of these verses would come across when I'd open scripture, Mm -hmm. and then what I found myself doing, and by grace I began recognizing this, that I was not preaching the clear 
expression of those scriptures, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I was proclaiming them through the lenses of my Presbyterian tradition. I would not mm-hmm. have used the word tradition, but my Presbyterian way of understanding mm-hmm. free will, grace, justification, mm-hmm. glorification, sanctification, mm-hmm. all these things. And what I was recognizing is that my particular slant on the way I was interpreting these scriptures to the people, in fact, sometimes took away the power of the scripture itself. It mm-hmm. lessened mm-hmm. what it was saying. It was making it easier for the people to accept and live. In fact, I was, because of my Presbyterian assumptions, was basically saying, this might be what it says, but that's not really what it means, and so mm-hmm. you don't need to worry about it. Mm-hmm. And the problem was that I began to also realize that my particular Presbyterian eyeglasses were different than the Methodist, the Anglican, the Lutheran, the Assembly of God, the mm-hmm. Church of Christ, the mm-hmm. Baptist. They were looking at the same scriptures, and they had their own lenses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, Ken, you went through the same thing. Yeah, and you're beginning to wonder, well, which, you know, which is my, what makes my lens any more authoritative than the, than the guys down, down the street? You know, I, I can come at this, the same thing you're talking about in a different way. Um, I think that when, when I went to Bible college to study theology and scripture, and, and then I went to seminary to do the same thing, Within your tradition, again, or within within the worldview of the particular denomination that you're with, you're taught a theology. So you're taught a systematic way of putting the pieces together. How does salvation happen? What is justification? How does it differ from sanctification? And you learn a theology. If you will, that's your, your eyeglasses you're talking about, or a grid, and then what happened to me, and this is what I hear you saying in other words, is that when I got in the pulpit where, where I was opening up the actual pages of Scripture and then trying to teach through the Scriptures too, because I was, I was doing the um, expository preaching through books of the Bible, then you begin to face the actual words there. And so the, uh, the, the tension or the, the dissonance in my head was becoming one of, I've got this grid that I learned, this theological system, but it's starting to look like some kind of a logical construct that I'm like a framework that I'm dropping over the Bible. But when I'm but when I'm here opening the Bible and then trying to very honestly and faithfully read it, just read it out loud and then hear what it's saying and explain what it's saying, I'm finding there's this all these passages that are giving me trouble with my grid. You know, the, the grid and the passages are not working together. And and then uh, another image that comes to my mind is the Greek, um, you know, from Greek mythology, the story of Procrustes and his bed, the Procrustean bed. Procrustes is this guy, you know, some kind of a, some kind of an evil man who has this inn. And people who are on their way, you know, from one city to another in, in Greece, he invites him to come stay in his inn, for a nice dinner and to spend the night. And he's got this special bed. And he and he says, you know what, you're gonna love this bed. And the trick is everyone fits the, his bed. It doesn't matter whether you're six foot eight or whether you're four foot two, um, everyone fits the bed of Procrustes. 
And it's not till they have their, they enjoy their dinner and they go in and they lay down on his bed that they begin to learn the facts of why everybody fits the bed. Because if the person's too short, Procrustes puts them on a rack and he stretches them until, <laughs> until they fit the bed. You know, you know where I'm going with this. And, it, and if the person is like you, very tall, sorry, sorry, Marcus, but he has to amputate the feet and as much of the legs as he has to, to get you to fit the bed. Well, you know where I'm going. This is how I began to feel in the pulpit, and especially regarding this issue of, of salvation that we're going to get to in a moment. Yeah. Um, as I began to feel like I was Procrustes, like I was reading the passage, but my job was not necessarily to explain what it was saying. My job was to make it fit the Procrustean bed of the theological system that I had inculcated and, and that I felt was true. And uh, so if I had to chop off some feet, you know, or if I had to stretch some, some passages, that's what, that's what my job was to do. And, and this becomes very uncomfortable very quickly. Yeah. Anyway, you know, shoot. What's, what's wild about the, of all, of all the things we're going to do here in our program is I've, I've picked out a whole bunch of verses, but can another verse comes to my mind that ex- in my mind illustrates exactly mm-hmm. what you're talking about because you and I come from different pulpits, different backgrounds, mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. convictions. Uh, it would have been nice to have Jim Anderson join us because he came from a more Methodist perspective. Yeah. But I was of the once saved, always saved perspective, mm-hmm. uh, pres- uh, Calvinist Presbyterian that would have believed that if you had accepted Christ by grace, faith, mm-hmm. then you could not lose your salvation, which meant that mm-hmm. you could not apostatize. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't apostatize. It yeah. wouldn't make sense. So, you know, the Hebrews passage that says, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened— who have tasted the heavenly gift and have been partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then commit apostasy, mm-hmm. since mm-hmm. they crucify the Son of God on their own account and hold him up to content, that's Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. You know, when I got in the pulpit and had to deal with that verse, I would have had to come up with an explanation mm-hmm. to fit that into the size of my theological bed. Mm-hmm. Because he's talking about someone committing apostasy. But in my particular theology, you don't commit apostasy if, in fact, you've been predestined and called by Christ. Right, right. And by, by the way, just so that our, our hearers know, your background and mine, though, it, you're right, bringing Jim Anderson in would be interesting because your background and mine were very, very similar. Yeah. I, I was a Calvinist Baptist, you were a Calvinist Presbyterian, so there are a few differences, but the but the basic Reformed worldview uh, pertained throughout. And so, anyway, uh, if I could comment on that verse that you're reading from please, Hebrews. Yeah, please. yeah, um, and, and, and Hebrews is full of them. Let me throw one more into the pot, and we'll talk about them together. In Hebrews chapter 3, um, here, here's one that got me, verses 12 through 14. Take care, brethren, lest there be in any one of you, and he's speaking to believers, Hebrew believers, Christians, 
lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we share in Christ if only we hold our confidence firm to the end. You know, and again, <laughs> Hebrews Hebrews is full of them. The one you read from chapter, was that 12 you were reading? Six. Or six? six. Yeah, cha- chapter six. And, okay, here's the grid. When I dropped the grid over it, what my what my Reformed view of justification, what my grid taught me was this, or what my grid told me and insisted upon was, okay, the second I come to faith in Jesus, his perfect righteousness was legally transferred to my account. It was imputed to me, justification by imputation, Ken Hensley's account was stamped innocent. And in God's eyes, from that moment on, I was as righteous as Jesus Christ himself in terms of my standing before God. You know, you, all, all these terms are familiar, familiar right. right? You know, in terms of how God looked at me from the moment of faith, I was forgiven for all sins, past, present, future sins. I was credited with Christ's righteousness. So, so if I've been justified... This cannot happen to me. I cannot. I, you know, why? Why should I be warned to not let you know my my heart become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, as though I could fall away from the living God? You can't fall away if I'm justified. There's no way I can fall away. Or the one you said, those who have been enlightened and who've tasted of the Holy Spirit and the powers of the age to come. I had to interpret. This is the reformed way. You had to interpret that passage, and I did, as saying, well, it doesn't mean that they themselves were actually justified. Um, what, he, what he's saying in, in Hebrews chapter 6, read the words again. What are the words there that you were looking at? Oh, yeah. you got to open the Bible again? Yeah, i got to read you. No problem. It says, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God okay. and the powers of the age to come, if— Okay, so, yes, so they were enlightened, they had tasted of the powers of the age to come, and they had been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, it, it even says. Or what does it say right. about the Holy Spirit exactly? Yeah, become partakers of the Holy okay. Spirit and have tasted okay, the goodness even, of the Word of God. Okay, partakers of the Holy Spirit, and yet what, what someone within the Reformed worldview has to say is— this doesn't mean that they had actually themselves become partakers of the Holy Spirit. It just means that they were around the church. <laughs> they were in an environment where they saw these things happening. And in that sense, they tasted of the powers of the, the age to come. In that sense, they were partakers. But they could not have themselves actually been partakers because if they were truly justified, then they are saved. And the Holy Spirit cannot leave. You see, yep. you have oh, yeah. to do this whole game. You've given a great so example. Like, this is going to be great for our audience to help those of you listening where we're coming from because we have this grid, as Ken describes, that we have to make the Scripture fit because we're so committed to the grid. Now, I had my answer to this. I remember this when I was a, a Presbyterian pastor dealing with some of these exact verses, Ken, mm-hmm. that— that didn't fit the grid, but not just in theory, in theory, but because 
we knew of men and women in our church who had been active members on the board, trustees, but yeah. then left. You know, their marriages broke up. They they ran out. They they went away from the church. They were no longer practicing their faith. How do we explain that? And so our answer was Romans chapter ten, verse. 13 or, uh, or 9. Yeah, okay. Which says, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's one of those verses that most evangelical mm-hmm. Protestants memorize. Mm-hmm. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What was my answer? Folks, here's the problem that some people say on the outside what isn't true on the inside. So they may have confessed with their lips all the stuff that we've seen, but obviously in their heart they had not surrendered to Jesus Christ. Now, is there a problem with that? So what that? you're saying is that that person, what you're saying though, is that that person who was on the board had never truly been a Christian. That's, that's the out clause. We needed an out clause to deal with Scripture that didn't fit our particular grid, or to use the more theological term, Ken, our hermeneutic, right? Mm-hmm. Our understanding of, of the way to look at life. And so if it didn't fit, we made it fit, explaining it away. And, and the point of this audience is, for, coming from both Ken and I, is we recognize that we're not talking about whether uh, a, a great variety of, of practical suggestions in Scripture. We're talking about something that talks about eternity. Mm-hmm. Eternity. And, I mean, even the—we won't go into it, but even the beginning of that passage where the writers of Hebrews says it's impossible to bring these people back. Mm-hmm. Did he mean literally? Or mm-hmm. pastorally, mm-hmm. you know, from a pastor standpoint, Ken, mm-hmm. if people fell away, it's and they if they knew it all, it's hard to get them back. We know it's almost impossible. Nothing's impossible for God. Mm-hmm. So, did he mean? My point being, how do we interpret Scripture to make sure that we're delivering number one, the truth of Scripture to the people to whom we're responsible as a pastor, but mm-hmm. also as a father? or as a grandfather, a mother, a grandmother, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and for ourselves. When we look at any of these verses, do we immediately set them aside because of the grid that we're bringing with us, the Scripture, or are we hearing exactly what they say? And the reason this is important, excuse me, Paul says in Galatians 1, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, mm-hmm. let him be a curse. Well, look at all the gospels out there today. And they're by the thousands of different ways of understanding scripture and history and church and religion. Mm-hmm. Which of those is clearest? to that which our Lord passed on to his apostles and that which the Apostle Paul passed on. Well, you know, what we're, what we're talking about here as, as a couple of guys who lived through this being pastors 
And um, I guess another way that I could say it, which may be a way that I've already said it, <laughs> but but um, another thing that I remember, Mar- Marcus, is that within the Reformed way of thinking, within the Reformed school of thought that we're talking about, um, we would go to Paul yeah. as Luther went to Paul in the end, Calvin. We would go to Paul because we thought that in Paul, we thought that we had some passages in Paul that would support this view that we had. And then we would just try to avoid as much as possible Hebrews and James. And I'm sure that a Reformed pastor listening to me right now would say, oh, this is ridiculous. I have good explanations for all these passages in Hebrews. But, but, but But I'm remembering how it felt to kind of want to avoid Hebrews, kind of want to avoid James, definitely want to avoid the Gospels, because... What I thought that I had in Paul, that is, you know, justification by faith alone. You quoted that verse. If we believe in our heart that, you know, if we confess Christ as a Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And if you take that passage and just lift it right out as though it's as though it's a mathematical formula, like two and two, you know, two plus two equals four. Then, yeah, it sounds like it's saying salvation by faith alone. But when you go to Hebrews or James or, again, God, Lord forbid, the Gospels, what you find out is that to confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord contains a lot of stuff. To confess with your lips, because notice Paul goes on in that passage in Romans to say, believe in your heart. Okay, if I confess with my lips that he is Lord and I believe in my heart that he is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you find that that includes a lot of other stuff. It includes taking up your cross and following him. It includes loving him. It includes repenting of sin. It includes, you know, obedience to his, I know you're going to read the passage, so I don't want to steal the thunder of that. But what I was beginning to see was that those words contain a lot. And that if you read all of the things that are commanded in the New Testament of those who would be saved, you quoted one to me before we got out, got on the radio about pursue holiness without which no man will re- will see the Lord from Hebrews chapter 12. But so many in the Gospels that that's the began, thing that began to bother me was, am I reading Paul right? Was Luther and was John Calvin were the reformers and the whole classical reform tradition passed down from them? Were they reading Paul right if in order to stick with your view of Paul, you end up having to explain away the Gospels and Hebrews and James and a ton of other passages in the, in, in the Bible. And, you know, not so quickly, someone who may be listening and saying, oh, it's easy to explain them, because even Luther, you know, even Luther saw such tension between his interpretation of Paul and these other passages that he said about the Gospel of, I mean, about the Epistle of James, he said, it's made of straw. He says, I feel like throwing Jimmy into the stove he, he says, I want to throw him into the stove and burn him up because he flatly contradicts Paul. But anyway, go ahead. I, I see well, you've got, you've, no, you've got no, a smile I, on your face. I'm going to run on that because what I'd like to do now, given we've kind of explained at least a little bit of the grids <laughs> that we brought with mm-hmm. us as, as clergymen, as, as Calvinists, evangelical, I was Presbyterian, you was Baptist, you were Baptist. But as you emphasize— we often avoided the Gospels 
because there were things that Jesus said that the, the clear, literal ex- understanding of what he said didn't fit our grid well. So we had to come up with an explanation, and often that was a plan A, plan B, that what Jesus was saying was before the cross, and then we have a plan B after the cross. And so what we ended up doing is not only did we take Paul, but we, are, we compartmentalized Paul because I'd like to begin our scriptures, Ken, by throwing, okay, this is Paul. So how did you deal with this verse from Paul, right? Romans 2, when Paul says, mm-hmm. For he will render to every man according to his works. To those who by patient and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are factious and do not obey the truth, but obey wickedness, there will be wrath. And fury. So how do you fit that into your grid? And um, look down to verse 16 quickly, because in the same context there, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I thought no you problem, were no the, problem, no problem. Yeah. Within the same context, he summarizes this position he's describing as my gospel, right? Yes. Read it, you know. So, okay, here, here I'm going to, um, how did I explain it? Okay. okay. Early on, when I was definitely within the grid, and I was operating within the grid, the answer that has to be given goes like this. Well, in Romans chapter 2, Paul is not really saying what he believes, what he personally believes. When he says that God will judge each man according to his works, you know, the passage you just read, he's not really stating what he believes. He is stating what would be true it's a hypothetical. He's what he's describing is what would be true if salvation were by works. If salvation were by works, then um, this is how things would go. God would judge each man according to what he had done. To those who, by perseverance and well doing, sought eternal life, he would give them eternal life. But to those who were hard hearted and sinned, they would be judged. Um, but he's only saying this to create tension because in chapter three, he's going to turn around and say, Whew, Good thing that's not how we're saved. Instead, we're saved in another way. So in other words, the bottom line answer is you have to explain that passage as being that Paul is saying Paul is saying something he doesn't really believe. He's setting forth a hypothetical works by salvation, I mean salvation by works that he then demolishes in the next chapter of Romans. So what what you're saying then is that through these methods of interpreting Paul the gospel. Explain it away. One explains it away. In other words, for he will render to every man according to his works, not if you're in Christ, because you're covered with the righteousness of Christ. So how you live your life. I think Luther said something, if I commit adultery 10,000 times a day, I won't lose my salvation. I was told he said that. But there's that. Let me give you another scripture to throw at you. Okay, that's wrong. We explain it away in Paul. Well, Revelations chapter 20 this ain't Paul. Mm-hmm. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which mm. is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, by what they had done. And the sea gave the dead, the dead, the Hades. Then Hades and death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. And the book of life has to do with what they had done. Okay, let, let me toss that one to you. How would you have, how would you have preached it? 
I didn't you can remember. Well, but how would you have? I know, but I'm also saying. I can tell you how I would have. I, I will tell it. you that there are. I've got file cabinets of all the sermons I preached as a Protestant minister, mm-hmm. and I can tell you when I got to verses that didn't fit the grid well, if I didn't have an easy answer, I didn't preach on them. And that's the issue of Protestant preaching: is that you can choose what mm-hmm. to go into the pulpit with, and you can avoid. I never preached on John chapter six, for example. This verse, the reason this would. Uh, often hit me is that there's verses like this from Revelation that show up in, in the in the liturgies for for uh, uh, funerals, mm-hmm. and their works follow them. Remember that verse? And, uh-huh. and their works follow them. Their works follow them. I can't remember which. That's in Revelation 11, I think. So how would I explain this? Back, I would. The truth is that, the, and I'll be honest with you, the truth is during the entire time I was a Presbyterian, the issue of faith and works was bugging me. Mm-hmm. was bothering me because it, it, it never seemed right to me that we wouldn't be accountable for how we lived our lives. That didn't make sense to me. It never made sense to me that we wouldn't be accountable for what we did with our will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I always struggled with Luther's total depravity and, and Calvin's. I, was always, I always called myself a four-point Calvinist not a full five-pointer. Mm-hmm. How would I explain this? I would have immediately jumped to the thing you said earlier, that when we stand before God and he asks, why should I enter into Because I Because God would look at my life and he would look at my deeds and he would look at my mess and I would say and point to Jesus, my Lord and my Savior, and then mm-hmm. I would assume that we recovered then with the grace of Christ with the righteousness of Christ. Although that's not what that verse is saying that at is all. That is not what that verse, it's exactly right. And so I yeah. would get through it and boom and move on. And the danger is, and I, mm-hmm. I think this happened, that there'd be a lot of people sitting in the pews asking that very question. But that's not what that says. But, See now. but, but pastor said it was this way. Mm-hmm. That's not what it says, but pastor said it was this way. So he's done more study than me so he must be right. And I think that happens a lot out there when there's a contradiction between the Scripture and the sermon, but the people mm-hmm. in the pew are led to believe that, well, this is my pastor, then he must be right. And so mm-hmm. that's where whole denominations start. Mm-hmm. See, now, this is where I might have been trapped a little more often than you were, because I made the choice to preach expositorily straight through books of the Bible. <laughs> so when I came to a passage, I had to figure out something, you know, I had to right. figure out something. Yeah, yeah, it's safer if you just pick a passage, you know, that you want to preach well, on. Well, I did it that because, way. Because there's so many verses, you never have to get to the ones you don't want to talk about. I did it that way. And I, I, I remember preaching all the way through Ephesians for a whole year, okay. you know, it took to get through Ephesians. So I did ex- that yeah. kind of preaching. Okay, you did that some. I, I did that some. you Revelation. I never did Revelations. I always felt that was way over my head because of all the different views of ah-mill, post-till, pre-mill, post-toasty, and all those different ways of understanding. I didn't want to even go there. Well, see, now, here's what I basically—you know what? I'm I'm a lot more like you, though, in your experience. I don't don't want to get into this in detail because it maybe goes aside, but I was actually back in seminary when I began to doubt— justification by faith alone. And then I went on to be ordained and be a pastor for 11 years, and I was teaching a view of salvation that was closer to to the Catholic view for most of my years as a pastor, 
Um, but without knowing that it was the Catholic view, yep. without identifying it as, and without saying it, definitely. Yep. But anyway, so so um, I'm not really explaining to you what I did from the poll, but I'm explaining to you what I would have had to do if I was really committed to the grid. If you were sticking. And I, yeah, and I've heard plenty of Reformed pastors preach, and so I know what has to be done. See, when you— the that passage from Revelation 20 could be multiplied in the Gospels. Oh, yeah. my. You know, the, cl- the classic is Matthew 25, where, where the sheep and the goats stand before the Lord. And it, it, it's a picture of the last judgment, same with Matthew, with Revelation 20. And, and the Lord separates the sheep and the goats based upon, did they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord? No, based upon their, their deeds, what they had done. Yeah. And, and he says, the one group goes into the kingdom and the other group does not go, in, go into the kingdom. And so there are so many passages, uh, you know, and I won't preempt you read, reading them, but there are so many passages in the Gospels like this where Jesus talks about, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will come to you and my father will come to you and make his abode with you. Or if you remain in me and my words remain in you, or if you take up your cross and follow me, otherwise you cannot be my disciple. Jesus has all these, there are all these occasions in Jesus's preaching where he says to people, you must obey, yeah. you must follow. If you love me, if you repent of your sins, you know, all these things are, are given. And if you're, and if I was operating within the grid, I basically have to say to all of those points, I basically have to say either well, Jesus is just preaching the law in these passages in order to drive his hearers to despair so that he can turn around and give them the good news. By the way, none of this is true. All you have to do is believe to be saved. You know, something like that. Or you have to, you know, well, anyway, that's the primary answer that's given is to say, this is before the gospel. He's preaching the law. And the law is there to drive you to despair so that you can then be justified by faith alone. And I remember that the struggle I had, Marcus, was I tried to imagine Jesus walking out onto a hillside. Men, women, children, old men, old women, people who are not educated, crowds standing around. And he's going to say to them something that isn't true, supposedly to drive them to despair. He's going to say, to enter the kingdom of God, this is what you need to do. And he's going to he's going to start speaking the, the Beatitudes, or he's going to say to them, you know, believe in me, come and follow me, take up your cross, or, you know, feed the poor, clothe the naked, then you'll enter heaven. He's going to say this stuff to them, and he's going to drive them to despair, supposedly, because they can't do it in their own power. And then he's just going to walk away and go preach somewhere else. You know, if he did that, how come we don't read him saying, but of course, but of course, I, I'm just telling you this so that you'll understand the seriousness of your condition. But now here's the answer. All you have to do is believe. You know, he, he doesn't do that. And so you've got Jesus walking around and preaching the law and leaving everybody in their sins, supposedly. It's just a it's a terrible case of the um of the procrustean bed, of having to just completely torture these passages to make them fit. Actually, Ken. Uh, I don't think we go, need to go through all these verses. Obviously, I think the point that we're making, I think, is really clear. What you've just said, your your, your collection of these wonderful statements by Christ, which are very clear in themselves. Now, certainly, 
we may have to interpret them to understand the context in which he said them, of course. But the danger is to be accurate in our interpretation of them so we don't take away from the necessity of what he's teaching. You know, one of the... um, I didn't select it here as one of our verses, but after he says all those things in in the Sermon on the Mount, and most of the things you quoted come from the Sermon on the Mount, he he makes an absolutely critical statement in the Sermon on the Mount, in which mm-hmm. he says, um, and I'm going I'm going to nail it down here right here. Uh, oh, I'm looking in there. No wonder I couldn't find it. I was looking in John 6. No, I'm looking in Matthew 8, or 7, the end of 7. Yeah, it's pro- is and it the, the man building his house on the rock? The it's end right of seven? before that, right before that. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, no, actually up in verse 13. Mm-hmm. When Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Mm-hmm. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few, period. Now, the reason I wanted to mention that now, because Ken, you and I could come up with a list of a hundred verses that are harder than the way they come out after people have fitted them into their grid. For example, John, in the same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father Mm -hmm. is perfect. Okay. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father. And then he concludes the whole Sermon on the Mount by saying, by saying, essentially, let me tie this all together for you. The one who hears my words and puts them into practice is like the man who built his house on a rock. The storms come, it stands. The other one's house gets blown away. The whole thing, I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and our point for this deep in Scripture is simply this. Those of you listening, if you're a pastor, if you're a layman, when you read these Scriptures, do you hear what they are saying? And then by grace and humility, Mm -hmm. seek to follow them. Or do you theologize them away? In fact, we can get caught up, Ken, I mean, not you and me, but people can get caught up in, you know, justified by faith or works alone or Mm -hmm. faith alone. When are you sanctified and how many times do you need to Mm -hmm. be sanctified and glorified? But the bottom line is, the bottom line is, Mm -hmm. Scripture says that we will stand before God, held accountable for how we live this life. We will. And the gate is narrow. And Jesus said that few enter. Why do few? See, I think sometimes because we have such an ecumenical spirit today that we want to come up with explanations mm-hmm. that widen that gate as wide as possible. I mean, think about it. If all you had to do is say, I love Jesus, he's my Lord and Savior, and therefore you're covered with righteousness, all of a sudden you've made that gate really, really wide. Because you can't even lose it. Because of something I said 55 years ago at a Bible camp when I went when I was pressured into kneeling before this 
enthusiastic, charismatic youth minister on a lake of Erie, and I accepted Jesus' fear of trembling. Now here I am at age 67. Why? I'm getting through the gate no matter what I do. Is that true? Is that what Scripture says? That's what some pastors say. So the, the, the key here is, are you hearing the mm-hmm. truth of Scripture so that you can stand before God without embarrassment? Well, let me let me turn around and, and defend the uh, Reformed position a little bit. Um, you're right. Within, within the, the wide spectrum of Protestant beliefs, there are some that, that fit the bill exactly as you were just describing. I heard one pastor at a, at a very large megachurch in Houston, Texas one time say to the crowd, if you accept Jesus as your Savior today, I don't care whether you leave this hall and you spend the rest of your life starting and running a string of brothels. <laughs> These are his words. He said, I don't care if you're in one of your brothels. When Jesus returns, you will go up through the ceiling into heaven. You know, when the when the rapture happens. OK, there are there are some that take that view that you accept Jesus as savior. You cannot lose it. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how you live. But now here is my defense within the Reformed tradition that you were part of and that I was a part of that represents more accurately Luther, Calvin, all the Puritans, all the reform, the, the main reformers. They would not have said that. What they would have said is this. They would have said, oh, but Marcus, if you truly believed when you were back at that camp on Lake Erie when you were a kid, if you if you truly believed then in Christ, you were you were justified. His righteousness was credited to your account. And yes, it's true. You are saved and you never, ever can lose that salvation. But they would add. This is my defense. They would add. But everyone God justifies. He also regenerates. And so you would have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And the evidence of that regeneration would be that you would strive and struggle in life to be obedient to God. And so you would not be this guy who just goes out, you know, and starts a string of brothels and all that. And therefore, the reform position is to say, Marcus, if you struggle and uh, for holiness throughout your life, then that's giving evidence that you truly did believe back on back at Lake Erie and you were justified. And if you go off and start a string of brothels and you don't care about obedience or you fall away and you remain away, then it's not like you've lost your salvation. It's just that you have given evidence now that you never truly had it. Well, see, now you're going back to my Romans 10 thing where in other yeah, words, it didn't yeah. matter what you said, you really didn't believe in your heart. Yeah, and what's yes. really interesting is that led to the entire New England Puritan theology where their whole lives were really more based on looking at how they were living their life as some trying kind of to figure proof. out whether they were yeah whether they were proofed whether they were truly one of the elect how would you know that well by the way they lived yeah. so <laughs> and the thing that's so uh, this is exciting the thing that's so interesting about that marcus is, is that the very thing that protestants will say to us catholics is you can't be sure you're saved you spend all your time trying to figure out whether you're going to make it to heaven because you don't have that assurance but then, like you said, the Puritans, who were the most serious of all Protestants, and Calvinists, the most Calvinist of all, they spent their whole lives often introverting and examining their spirit. Because what's that passage in Paul in 2 Corinthians 13 where he says, 
examine yourselves to see whether you be in the faith or do you not recognize that the spirit of God is within you lest you fail the test. Okay, that's a verse that they spent their lives thinking, am I one of the elect? Is, Is the fruit evident in my life? Is there proof that the Holy Spirit is in me? Yeah. Go ahead. I had to throw that in. That's exactly because, right, Ken. Maybe I'll tell you what. Maybe I'll bring our discussion to a close here because this has been fun. Ken really has, okay. and I hope it's been audio, and we can pick it up again another time. And I want to end it by referring back to something you said, Ken, because you had said when you were talking, you said, well, there might be some men out there listening who said, well, I've got an explanation for that. I've got a way of explaining that. And, and that's the point. Just because we have an explanation— to come up with a conundrum in Scripture doesn't necessarily mean that our explanation is true. And one might say, yeah, but my quote comes from Augustine, or my quote comes from Athanasius, or my quote comes from Aquinas, or my quote comes from Luther or Calvin, or, and I got a It doesn't matter mm-hmm. in the sense that that doesn't mean it's necessarily true because we may be speaking through a grid. So in the end— we believe through our journey of studying for us that we recognize that the authority isn't a bunch of opinions. The authority is a church guided by the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. just as our Lord promised in Scripture that he would give the Scripture to his apostles to guide them into all truth. They might remember everything our Lord had said, and so that, as Jesus said in Romans 8, that they would continue as his in his word as his apostles and they would know the truth and the truth would make them free we believe that that's where the trustworthiness so when you read a scripture like you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect how am i going to live that out the lord has given us a church to understand how to grow in perfection how to grow in holiness which often means more important than anything is growing in humility and confessing our sins and and receiving new life every time we confess our sins to start over again by grace there's there's so much more to talk about on this subject let's do this again let's do it that's a lot of fun ken thank you and thank you all for joining us in this episode of deep in scripture i hope it's been an encouragement to you if you have any questions please come to our website chnetwork.org where not only you can pose your questions you can get involved in our online community. Thank you. Look forward to being with you again next week. Deep in Scripture is a production of the Coming Home Network International. To hear more episodes, view our full archive of written and video conversion stories, participate in our online community forum, and more, visit chnetwork.org. You're also invited to explore free membership in the Coming Home Network and receive support on your own Catholic journey. Again, visit chnetwork.org for more information.